We are in the middle of a uh, series on the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, We have been moving slowly through the first two chapters. We began chapter three last week, and after this week, um, we'll take a little break for Palm Sunday and Easter the next couple of weeks. And then when we get back, uh, we'll begin chapter four, and we'll kind of pick up the pace a little bit through the rest of the spring. But um, we're looking at Genesis, the creation story, these cosmic-sized questions, and not questions like, why did God put a tree in the Garden of Eden to begin with? Those are fine and acceptable questions. That's just not the kind of questions we're looking at. We're looking at questions like, where does desire come from? Where does longing come from? Where does pain come from? Where does sin come from? And where is redemption to come from? And all that is in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, these life-altering questions and stories uh, that, that come to us in this text. So we've seen God create this beautiful world, this beautiful cosmos, and then he plants this garden and he places Adam and Eve in it. And he says, work it, keep it, flourish it, rule over it with me and be fruitful and multiply and share in the joy of continuing to create in this world with me. That's the first two chapters. And then we saw last week, Daryl talked to us about the cosmic car wreck of sin and rebellion and treason that entered the world. And so this week we look at kind of The next step after that where God comes, the maker comes and begins to give judgments uh, for the treason that's been committed. But we'll also see, I hope, that this God who gives these judgments in in the wake of sin um, is not like other gods. Um, He does not only have judgment for them. He's actually got something far better. So if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter three, it's on page two of all of your Bibles. Um, If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen. But Genesis chapter two, starting in verse 14, says this. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Yeah, that's not the right theme music. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Amen, this is the word of the Lord. So if you've been following along in this journey of the creation narrative, the creation song, Genesis 1 and 2, in the opening chapters, you know that what God is doing is it's it's like ecstasy after ecstasy. It's bliss upon bliss. It's delight after delight. It's the exuberance and the abundance of joy in this word blessing. God is creating and he's blessing. He's creating and he's blessing. And it's nothing but joy and delight and co-creation and dwelling with the maker and all is well. And the way that God says it at the beginning of chapter two is it was very good. Then we get to chapter three And that's where the thread begins to get pulled and we see the crumbling. We see the shattering 
of sin. We see the, the rebellion and the treason and what that causes in the cosmos. And here's how the reader, if you were just reading from Genesis 1 on, here's how the reader would know that there's this record scratch moment. Here's how the reader would know we've got problems here, is that in our passage, we hear a word that we haven't heard yet. Curse. Everything up until this point has been blessing. Everything up until this point has been joy. And now we have curses. The blessings are being reversed. What was this joyous dance and literal song of creation is now this lament, this dirge. It's, it's this shadow that's been cast over the whole picture. It's not just that sin ruins the relationship between God and man, it does that. It ruins the relationship between everything all the fiber and all the DNA of how the world was supposed to work and everything that God intended for the world has now been shattered. This is not just angry judge in heaven who gets mad because his people disobeyed. This is, I created a world that was supposed to work a certain way. I created a cosmos that was supposed to be weld together and have joy and exuberance and abundance and now that's been turned on its head. If you're looking at the world through the lens of Lord of the Rings, which you always should, this is like, we've been in Rivendale. Like this is, this is like where there's magic and there's mystery and there's healing and there's power and there's song and there's feasts. That's what's going on in Genesis one and two. And then chapter three, we get to Mordor like in an instant. There's a shadow of, of, of skulls everywhere. There's, there's half creatures, and evil, evil dealings. It's every, no, no life is, can be lived in mortar and the shadow of what's been cast. That's the picture. The created order has been forever altered. So after the treason and the shadow is set in, because of the acts by Adam and Eve and the serpent, now we hear them stand and face judgment from the one that they've betrayed. And these curses that are given, it's really interesting, they're given in like poetic form, this poetic cursing that is, is coming forth, these judgments. Uh, I'm just gonna kind of briefly summarize them and tell you what was said in them. We could pick apart each line of the, of the covenant curses that are being handed out, but it's more meant to be taken like a poem, like take the whole thing and see what it means. But if you're kind of walking through the lines, here's what happens. The curse is given to the serpent is that he will be cursed above all livestock. He will walk on his belly for the rest of his life, which no one knows. Does that mean he had legs? He stood upright before. No one knows. I, I tend to think it did mean that. But he will eat dust all the days of his life. He will be a cursed creature. And then he gets to the woman, Eve, and she will have pain in childbearing, which makes you wonder, what was it like before? How is it? Anyway, um, that pain in bringing forth children, pain in raising children, pain in trying to be a mom. And then we're told uh, one of her curses is, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. And then Adam, the man, says, cursed is the ground because of you. And then it goes on this kind of extrapolating out of that, that, that he, the, 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 the work he's gonna try to do will produce nothing but thorns and thistles and sweat. And then we're told at the end of Adam's curse, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. And we're meant to kind of take the curses holistically and even poetically because here's what the reader, if you remember the original mandate, meaning a couple weeks ago, we looked at what job were Adam and Eve put in the world to do? What, were they, what task were they given? What mandate were they given? They were called to bring the world to life, 
to co-create in this world with their maker and to be fruitful and multiply and rule over it and take dominion and make it flourish and make it joyful and spread image bearers all over the cosmos. That's what, they were, that's what their call was. If you know that was their original call and then you read the curses in light of their original call, here's what the curses just told you. Everything they were made to do is now gonna be really difficult to do. That's the point of the curses. The curses directly to relate to what they were originally supposed to do. You were supposed to work the garden. You're supposed to tend the garden and keep it. You're supposed to make it flourish. You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And now because sin has entered, because death has entered, what mankind was made to do will have all kinds of resistance. Let me say that again. What mankind was made to do at the beginning, we'll have all kinds of resistance. The life we were made for, the joy we were made for, the work we were made for, the relationships we were made for will not work right because we're under a curse now. In other words, let me put this really simply, Genesis 3 is why life is hard. Genesis 3 is why life doesn't work the way that you want it to. This is why Murphy's Law is true, and this is why things fall apart. My family's in the middle of a possible move. We're packing everything up, and I realized last week trying to do my taxes. I highly recommend trying to do your taxes while you're moving. It's great. But um, trying to do my taxes, and I cannot find my newborn's Social Security card. It's packed up somewhere, I hope. Um, but I gotta go, if I'm gonna claim her on my taxes, which I desperately need to do, I've got to find her social security number. Don't have it memorized. So I've gotta go on Thursday, on my day off, I've gotta go on Thursday to the Social Security Administration office. Anybody work there? Good, because if you did, you would not be welcome at this church. Because here's where I, I, go, I go to the Social Security office and it doesn't work. Like it, it, is not, it, it is not efficient. It doesn't work right. I finally wait in line with two of my offspring and uh, we're in the social security office and I finally get to the front of the line and all the documents that they're told me I need, I get to the front of the line and they say, actually, these don't work. You gotta go across town and get some other documents, wait another line and then come back here. Okay, so we get back in the car. I've got, again, two of my offspring behind me, I hope buckled in. And I just grabbed the steering wheel and I yelled at the top of my lungs, which I will not do right now, I am so angry to which my three-year-old you know, probably was traumatized and thinks dad needs to be in counseling. And so there's this like, here's, here's what like Social Security Administration uh, experience just uh, taught me or was a picture of, that's comical. Oh, you had to wait in line all day, sorry. You don't know. Because here's, here's what it taught me. Everything works like the Social Security office. And I say that comically and realistically. All of your relationships don't work. All of your pursuits don't work. All of your trying to create beauty. All of your things that you're trying to do that matter. All of your trying to help people. All of, all of your trying to get healthy yourself. All of your trying to be a good friend and be a good parent. All of it works as efficiently as that office did. It's gonna have major resistance and things aren't gonna work the way that you want them to. And you're gonna be screaming in a car, this is not working and I am so angry. There were some other expletives in there, maybe, okay? But there's like this, there's this reality that that, that little window is, is bursting forth out of Genesis 3 for us. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. What you were made to do will have all kinds of tension and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. 
Just take for a moment, this is just one line, we're not gonna walk through it line by line, but just take for a moment this one line from the curse given to the woman. This is not what this sermon's about. I'm just trying to show you how the poetic judgments that come to us are meant to show us nothing is going to work the way it's supposed to. And the curses given to the woman, she's told this. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Happy wedding day. And here, a lot of people uh, debate over what does that mean? What does that mean that her desire shall be contrary to, for her husband and he will rule over you? What does it mean? I don't know all that it means. I know it means at least this. Left to itself, the marital relationship will have tons of strife. It will be hard. Siri is commenting down here. It will be very hard. Wives, you're gonna long for something from your husband You're gonna want things from him. You're gonna want him to be a certain way. You're gonna want him to treat you a certain way. You're gonna want things for him and from him. And he's not gonna give them to you. Okay, so that alone should show you how hard marriage is gonna be. But now put that in the context of, hey, do you know Adam and Eve were put on the world to be fruitful and multiply and to take dominion? And now the very relationship that being fruitful and multiplying is supposed to be coming from is gonna be full of strife. That's the point of the curses. That's what all the curses are trying to say to the reader. In this cursed life, on this cursed planet, in this cursed reality, you will have thorns and thistles in all the places that you are trying to bring to life and joy and beauty in the world. It will not work right. That's what Genesis 3 is saying to you. It's potentially the only piece of our theology that is quantifiable in the world. (laughs) Like I can prove to you with like data that things don't work right. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. In his masterful little book, Stephen Pressfield has a book, The War of Art. Anybody read The War of Art? Four of you? Um, I'll buy it for any of you. It's a little like 70 page booklet. Stephen Pressfield who's an author calls this reality that we were just talking about in Genesis three. He calls it resistance with a capital R. Resistance is what you feel anytime you try to sit down and actually accomplish something that matters. A hard conversation with a friend, creating your next album, asking someone out, trying to love your spouse sacrificially, pursuing something meaningful in this life, trying to get healthy yourself. Resistance is the inner intangible force that is constantly trying to talk you out of it, tell you it's already failed and that you're not enough to do it. Capital R, resistance. Love that book. Thank you, Stephen Pressfield. Genesis 3 just told you why there's resistance in the world. Sin and its curses are the antithesis of goodness and beauty. And ultimately, it's because in these curses, we're introduced for the first time, we're we're told about this reality that is now set in and is now covering everything, and it's the reality of death everywhere. That's what Adam is told. From dust you came and to dust you shall return. Ding, ding, ding. Death is here. Death is reigning. And death will now taint everything that you try to touch. There had been the threat of death before with the command, the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. But now death is here. Adam, you were made to live forever, but you will not now. Adam, your body was not intended to wear down, to wear out, or to literally like disintegrate but now it will. Your marriage was not supposed to have strife. Your work was not supposed to have resistance. The elements of life and everything you touch are now stained by the toxic lavender haze of death. You're welcome, Taylor Swift fans. 
Literally, like the, the, the purple toxic haze of death is not just, does not just mean you won't physically live forever in this life. That's not just what it's talking about. Death now stains everything, your relationships, your pursuits, your hopes, your dreams, your endeavors, your I want more from the world. And why is it not working? Because death is here. And it makes it even worse. The first curse given to the serpent, we're told that not only is death here, not only is there strife in all the relationships, not only is work gonna be near impossible to not produce thorns and thistles for us, not only that, humanity, you now have a permanent enemy. You have an enemy, there will be enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and her offspring. You have an enemy who is planning on, scheming for, and hoping in all of the curses that are given to play themselves out fully and finally in your life. Meaning you have an enemy, not this like ethereal, uh, naive, uh, abstract thing called evil and darkness. There is a being, there's an intelligent being who celebrates, literally celebrates and plans for abuse, abandonment, human trafficking, addiction, loss, death, molestation, deceit, and greed, and anything else you could fill in there. Those things don't just have people longing they would go away. There's actually a being on the other side of those things, pushing those things forward, hoping those things reach their final end, which is to kill you. All the resistance and all the curses, you have an enemy cheering them on and working without rest to destroy and devour you with the weight of these curses. Glad you came to church. <laughs> like, who wants to get up in the morning? Who wants to try to face this capital R resistance with all the things that I want for my life? I want these relationships to work. I want these, this vocation to work. I want the, my family to work. Why, why is it so hard? Genesis 3 just told you. And if you're breathing and you have a pulse in here, Christian or not, you're longing for someone to come and deal with all of this. To deal with the curses, to deal with the enemy that is seeking the curses full fruition. And this is where the God of the Bible shows you what kind of God he really is. Look with me again at Genesis 3:15. You can throw this up there, Will. It says this. Is in the curses given to the serpent. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, we're gonna unpack this just briefly, but I want you to see that in the wake of the shattering of sin, the God of the Bible sneaks in a promise. That word offspring between your offspring and her offspring, is a Hebrew word that also means seed, your seed and her seed. And it's kind of like our English word fish that is the same in its plural version and its singular version. Like it's the same word singularly or plurally. And so when the, when the curse first starts coming at us, it is in the plural form of it, given the context. Between your offspring and her offspring, there will always be intimacy. That means all the children of the woman and all the offspring and the children of the evil one will always be at war with each other. Humanity will always have an enemy. It's plural. But then in the second part of the verse, that word seed, that word offspring, gets singularized. We're not talking about the plural offspring, the plural seed of the woman. We're talking about a singular seed of the woman. 
he, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're not talking about plural, we're talking about one. And what will this one seed of the woman do to the serpent? He, that's the offspring, that's the seed of the woman, talking to the serpent, will bruise your head and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. This is a poem, remember this, this is imagery. But that word bruise, I don't really like the modern English of that because we feel like, oh, I got a bruise on my arm. Oh, that kind of hurt. No, the same Hebrew word for bruise is the same Hebrew word for crush or pummel. And so the same word is used, what the serpent and the offspring of the serpent is gonna try to do to the offspring of the woman. They're gonna try to bruise, they're gonna try to crush each other. But then look at what will happen. The seed of the woman will have his heel crushed, meaning he's gonna hurt. There's gonna be some wounding done to the seed of the woman. But this serpent will also have something happen to him that this one seed will do to him. Will crush his head. I don't know how familiar you are with hand-to-hand combat, but if your heel gets crushed, but you crush your opponent's head, who wins? So here's what we were just told. Somehow, we're in, we're in the, again, lavender haze of the fallout of sin. And now somehow, in some way, this little promise is snuck in. Somehow, in some way, this singular seed of the woman will one day, from her line, will come and will finally, ultimately, and definitively crush evil's head. This is the inception of the promise that will literally carry the biblical story forward from this point on all the way until kingdom come. In the blast radius of sins, shattering is the promise of God to mend it all. Genesis 3.15, theologians call Genesis 3.15 the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. This is the first time any mention of a savior, first time any mention of a rescue, first time any mention of evil not defeating good ultimately. This is the first mention that one day someone will come to make all this right again and undo the curses of sin. Now, if you're an ancient Israelite, reading this passage or hearing this passage read, and you're walking through the wilderness on your way to the promised land, or you get settled in the promised land and you're in Torah school, or you are in Babylonian captivity, and you read and reread these passages, and this passage in particular, what do you think the listener now is dying to know about the woman after the promise of 315? Will someone please give me a family tree for this woman? Will someone please tell me what happened to her kids? What happened to, uh, okay, if our hope for the cosmos being restored, if our hope for evil not winning, if our hope for evil and darkness being crushed one day in the head is gonna come from this singular offspring, this singular seed of the woman, I gotta know what happens to her family. I I gotta be able to follow the seed throughout history. Let's follow the seed from the woman. Let's track her family line. Let's see where this family goes because the hope of a shattered creation is now somehow mysteriously but seemingly permanently resting on this promised seed from the woman. So if you've ever wondered why scripture in large part has so many genealogies, it wasn't entirely to bore you. Here's why they give genealogies. We're trying to follow the family line I'm trying to show you this person had this son and this person had this son, this person had this son. And what the reader's dying to know is, is this line ever gonna be cut off? 
Is this line from the woman ever gonna be cut off? We have to know, is this line from the woman? And then you get to Genesis 12 and the genealogies from Genesis three to Genesis 12 are tracing this seed from the woman. Her line's still intact, her line's still intact, okay? And now we get to Abraham and Abraham's told, you're now the family that this seed is gonna come through in the world. And this seed that's gonna come through your family, Abraham, I'm gonna use that seed, that singular offspring from your family, Abraham, to not only crush the head of the serpent, I'm gonna bless the whole world too. Through your family, Abraham, so now, the hopes and the anticipation of what will this seed do are building. They're, they're, okay, so now we have a seed who we're promised is gonna crush the serpent's head and now he's gonna bless the whole world somehow too. Let's follow Abraham's family. Can we please follow Abraham's family? And I would say, yes, that's called the Old Testament. That is the story of Abraham's family. And yes, there's ups and downs. And yes, there's the story of God rescuing them in Egypt and de- there's all this stuff. Guess why the story of the Old Testament follows Abraham's family? because the seed from the woman's gonna come from his family. We gotta know, is this seed gonna still be intact? And then you get to David, King David, greatest king in Israel's history. Could he be the seed? He comes from Abraham's line. Could he be the one? David's not the one. But David's told, not only is the seed gonna come from your line, David, the seed is also not just gonna crush the serpent's head and bless the whole world. He's gonna be a king that will reign forever. So what do you think the people of God are interested in hundreds of years after David has died? Is his family still intact? Can we find his line? Do we know where his family tree is? And then the New Testament literally opens with these words, Matthew 1, 1, first words in the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. Here's what Matthew just told you. The seed is here. And if you know the story from the beginning, what do you know that the seed is here to do? Crush the head of the serpent, bless the whole world, and reign forever. And Jesus comes in the most unlikely of ways and he crushes the head of the serpent by being crushed himself. See, death was the curse and Jesus gets drowned in the curse. He became a curse for us. Jesus came to reverse the curse. Jesus, the seed of the woman. Jesus, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of David. Let me show you an image. It's framed in my office, painted by an obscure nun. Follow that. I'm gonna stop. Uh, This is called Eve Meets Mary. And I want you to take it in for a moment. You can leave it up for the remainder of our time, Will. I want you to see how Eve is covered in shame. What do you think Eve felt in the wake of her choice, in the wake of the curses? All has been lost, all has been shattered, and it's all because of me and this fruit in my hand. Do you remember what Adam and Eve do first after they sin? So as their eyes are opened, they immediately make a fig leaf covering for themselves. They make a covering, please do not miss this. In a newly stained world of sin, Adam and Eve choose to cover up and no one told them to. No modern psychologist was telling them that it was because of their daddy issues. And I'm not making fun of that. I'm saying there was something innate in them 
that was telling them, I have now sinned, I have now stained the world and all of it is now shattered because of me. If anyone sees me in my nakedness, I will be undone. I have to cover myself. That's why the Lord asks them in the garden, who, who, who told you you were naked? Who told you? Who told you to cover up? And it's a rhetorical question. No one told them they were naked. No one told them to cover up. This is part of what it means to live in a cursed creation. They could not bear the thought of having their shame exposed and so they choose to cover themselves because to be seen in their disgraced state would be unbearable to them. You cannot see me after what I've done. No one told them to cover up. No one tells us to cover up either. So last night, I was solo dadding because I'm an incredible husband. Um, and uh, we, wife was out with a friend and um, my two-year-old decided uh, while I was trying to watch basketball that, uh, that it would be time to send the newborn in her rocker, my three-month-old, two-year-old takes the three-month-old to shake her rocker like a washing machine. I mean, it was like, joyful but violent. And I'm, I'm trying to watch basketball and I just kind of hear some screaming, you know, and I look over and I see what's happening and I, I yelled, not as loud as social security yell, but I yelled. I yelled at my two-year-old, stop it. And the moment that she caught and her face saw my face and saw my anger just melted. And she falls on the floor and she puts her head in the rug and she's screaming and kicking her feet against the rug and I'm trying to lift her off the rug to hold her and she's, she won't let me look at her. I pick her off the floor and she will not look at daddy and I'm trying to look in her face and she won't let daddy do it and she's literally covering her eyes and I would say to her, who told her to do that? Who told her that no one can see her in her disgraced state? No one told her. She knew this is unbearable. What I have done and now I have made a mistake and now I have potentially ruined something and now I've got anger at me, no one can see me. Covering ourselves is perhaps the number one indicator that we live in a world that's been cursed. It's been said before, from fig leaves to 401Ks, we are all about covering our nakedness. We are terrified of being fully seen in our nakedness, and I don't mean just physically. If you saw who I really was, if you saw what I had fantasized about, if you saw what I had lusted over, if you saw what I had said, if you saw what I've done, you would leave me too. And so instead of seeing me, I would rather cover up so that you can't see me, so that you can't actually leave me. And so I will use anything to be a covering. I'll use a personality, I'll use a humor, I'll use a career, I'll use a, an accomplishment, I'll use an achievement, I'll use a network, I'll use a circle, I'll use a knowledge, I'll use something. Because when I get exposed, now I go into survival mode. If you saw me naked, if you saw me in my fully exposed spiritual state and then you left me, it would only intensify my shame. So I have to cover myself and covering myself feels like it's about survival. Literally, shame triggers the prefrontal cortex where you go into fight, flight, or freeze because it's survival. And so the only thing I know how to do in my survival is to cover up. Let me show you a part of me that I feel like you won't leave me if you saw. So I'll cover up. All I know how to do is turn my face and bury it in the rug. Please don't look at me. 
And in this shame covered, you can see Eve's face. We all know it. In this shame covered, sin shattered state, look at what the Lord does for them before they leave the garden. Verse 21. You can put this verse up, but then I'm going to come back to the image, Will. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In this decimated reality of a newly cursed world, the same God who was sinned against will not send his children out in shame. He sends them out covered. With what? Did you catch that? What does he clothe them with? Garments of skin. And he didn't poof those out of nothingness. What does the Lord have to do to cover them with garments of skin? Something had to die. God makes for them a skin covering from an animal. And that covering comes from bloodshed. Fig leaves were Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their shame, but before they leave the garden, God says, let me take what you have tried to use to cover yourself and let me give you a real covering for you. It's almost as if the God of the Bible really cares about shame. It's almost as if the God of the Bible knew in this newly cursed world that the thing that would utterly destroy Adam and Eve as they leave this place is their shame. So God decides as they leave, still in a cursed state, still in a judged state, God says, I'm actually gonna cover you though because I know what your deepest problem is. Your deepest problem is not even the sin that you've committed. The deepest problem is where that gets amplified when you try to be God and cover up for the sin that you've committed. That's your deepest problem. And actually, you trying to be God and save yourself is what got us here in the first place. We're in this mess because you tried to be God. We're in this mess because you tried to do it your way. It killed you in the first place and it'll keep killing you if I don't cover you. And so if you begin to understand that, if you understand that that's what uh, shame does to us, it makes us wanna cover ourselves. And then you see this God coming to try to cover them. You begin to actually see the poetic judgment curses that are coming down on them as potentially the most acute places that we will try to make coverings for ourselves and they will never work. Here's what I mean by that. All the curses go to the place in us that we think if we did better at it or did enough at it, it would finally be a covering that we could wear for ourselves. But it's cursed. It will never work for you. You cannot be a good enough mother to cover your shame. You cannot be a good enough spouse to cover your shame. You can't produce enough at work to cover your shame. You can't be good enough. You can't be enough enough. But all the curses are saying, if you just worked a little harder, if you were just a little bit better mom, if you had a better marriage, if you produced a more, if you made a little bit more, then you would be covered and you wouldn't feel ashamed, so keep working. And the enemy loves to come along and join in the chorus of the curses and say, yeah, maybe if you worked a little harder. Yeah, I know that it hasn't worked yet, but maybe if you keep trying, you will finally feel like you don't have to be ashamed of who you are. And if the enemy can keep the voice of shame firing, he will wear you out till you try to make a fig leaf big enough to cover you somehow because the enemy wants you to believe what he has always wanted you to believe, that you can save yourself. But Genesis 3 ends by saying, no, 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 no. 
you don't have to make a covering for yourself. God makes a covering for you and the covering comes from bloodshed. It's just this whisper of what's to come. It's been said before that the New Testament declares to us what's true and the Old Testament depicts for us what's true. The depiction in the garden is a God who would cover his people with bloodshed. And that's what the seed of the woman came to do. To give us a permanent covering for our shame and this covering would come from bloodshed as well. This is the blood of the sea, the blood of the one in Mary's womb who would crush the serpent's head. Look at Mary's face up there. Mary full of grace. If she could see Eve, if, if this moment could happen, she would say, Mary, she would say, Eve, I, I know you carry the weight of the world. I know you carry the weight of the world's shame in you. Put your hand on my womb and feel this seed that was in me. The seed in my womb came not only to undo all that you have done, he came to quiet those voices and give you a covering. Look at what Mary's doing with her left foot. <laughs> Crushing the head of the serpent. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are the seed who crushed the serpent's head. And in your crushing of the serpent's head, you give us a covering with your blood. And the fear of being seen and known in a world with fits and starts feels too terrifying unless we could dare to believe that we have a God who whispered in the garden what would be true at the cross. Let me cover you. And it will take bloodshed, but I am willing and longing to do it. Jesus, you see us, you know us, and you cover us. Would you guide us now in repentance and song as we close our time? In your name, amen.